welcome back to the And You Shall Know That I Am Yahweh podcast, exploring the book of Ezekiel. We pick up in Ezekiel chapter 29 and in verse 1. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, My Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your stream stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales, and I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered, to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am Yahweh. Because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel, when they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will bring a sword upon you and will cut off from you man and beast, and the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Because you said, The Nile is mine and I made it. Therefore, behold, I am against you and against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation from Migbal to Syene, as far as the border of Cush. No foot of man shall pass through it, and no foot of beast shall pass through it. It shall be inhabited forty years. And I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated countries, and her city shall be a desolation forty years among cities that are laid waste. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the countries. We have explored previously that Ezekiel in this section is providing uh, nation oracles. From Ezekiel chapter 1 through 24, uh, Ezekiel's primary concern uh, as a both priest and prophet had been to warn the Israelite exiles in Babylon regarding what would happen to Jerusalem and Judah and to the people there. Ezekiel has been prophesying in this uh, middle period where he has been exiled with uh, the elites and others in the days of King Jehoiakim, 597. And in that period of time between 597 and about 588, he was prophesying to the people, warning them that despite their uh, rosy expectations that Nebuchadnezzar would be defeated and they would all be returning home to Jerusalem soon, that in fact uh, Nebuchadnezzar was going to send an army, was going to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple uh, because of the great sinfulness of the people because they had turned to idols, because they had trusted in foreign policy and not in their God, and um, for other forms of iniquity. And in chapter 24, we're told that the siege had begun, and we would expect from this point on, during the time of the siege, perhaps even more thundering messages, but in fact what we get uh, from chapters uh, 25 until chapter 33 is nation oracles, where during the siege, and even, as we'll see, well after the siege, uh, the majority of the message that Ezekiel hears from God 
uh, involve the other nations around uh, Jerusalem and Judah. And we've already seen his message to many of them, uh, to Ammon and Moab and Edom and Philistia. Uh, we've seen his, and, and most recently, uh, three chapters of laments over Tyre and indictments of Tyre because uh, of its fortune as the economic capital uh, and, and trade capital of the area. And because after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, he turned to Tyre and besieged it for 13 years. And so most recently, though, right in the middle of this whole nation oracles and, and almost perfectly balanced to be so, uh, we have this message of confidence for Israel, that God was going to gather Israel from everywhere they were scattered, and the holiness of God would be manifest uh, in the side of the nations, and then they would dwell back in their land, and ex judgments would be executed against Israel's neighbors, and they would all know that Yahweh is the God of Israel. And so this prophecy that we are talking about here uh, is the most of the prophecy that Ezekiel hears in, around January 7th, 587, 586. So it is, the siege is almost over, uh, but it has not yet ended. And so now we're having this message toward Egypt. We will consider uh, verses uh, 13 through 16, which are still part of this prophecy in terms of also the prophecy to come, uh, because it does a good job of kind of doing a, a back and forth about certain things that were fulfilled as we would expect them and certain things that are fulfilled, maybe not as we would expect them, uh, continuing our conversation that we had uh, regarding all of what Ezekiel had promised regarding Nebuchadnezzar and Tyre. So now Ezekiel is talking to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And the core of the message that we see in verses 3 through 6, and then again in 9 through 12, is this message of judgment against the king of Egypt. Uh, he is calling him the, the, the great dragon, according to the uh, English Standard uh, Version. Uh, it is kind of a, a tanim. It is a, a serpent kind of character. Um, so this monster here that we're looking at is maybe a crocodile, uh, something of that sort. Uh, a lot of times people get disappointed in, in that kind of terminology, but you do not want to mess with a crocodile in the Nile. And so we're, we're invited to imagine Pharaoh as this crocodile, this great beast in, in a channel of the Nile. Uh, preening for himself how the Nile is my own, I have made it for myself. Which is a very interesting indictment, and one that would be difficult to take literally unless the pharaohs uh, have really uh, increased their um, propaganda game in the middle of their weakness, because the Egyptians believed in a whole host of gods, and, and the Nile itself was considered a god. It would be very interesting for any pharaoh to claim that he is, in fact, the god who is the Nile and has made the Nile. Um, however, as with other times that this happens in earlier in Ezekiel and in scripture throughout, a lot of times that this is the, the actual conclusion of the matter, that even if Pharaoh would never imagine to say this or think it even, uh, this is functionally how he's acting that, well, I am in charge of all of this and I have made all of this. 
I am so important and I am always going to be here. Um, we do well to remember that Pharaoh is considered a god in ancient Egypt, that uh, he is the current Horus. Not that he is Horus. I mean, they also believe in Horus, the, the falcon god as well. But he is the current Horus uh, who has come to rule the earth. And uh, upon his death will become the new Osiris, as whoever reigned as pharaohs before him uh, were as Osiris, uh, the, the god who was killed and became the kind of chthonic fertility god in, in the sense that by dying, he's able to bring a new life. And so we have uh, Pharaoh as God here, and, and, and all of this is his. The Nile River is extremely important to Egypt. Um, there is no Egypt without the Nile River. Uh, Egypt is, in fact, Egyptians call their land Kemet, the Black Land, because um, the Nile runs south to north. Uh, it is fed by all of the monsoons and, 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 and moisture that comes in parts of Central Africa and Ethiopia, and it all inundates the land, uh, all of Egypt, uh, until they built the Aswan Dam, of course. Uh, and it would leave all of this really rich soil that had been carried by the floodwaters. And those soils are what the Egyptians used to grow their crops. And so it was a very stable source of, of um, water and soil, and they irrigated their lands well, and they had a lot of, of, of food and prosperity for thousands of years. And so the indictment here of Egypt, uh, God says that, well, I'm going to grab you with hooks. All of the fishier streams are going to stick to you, all of those who are associated with you. I'm just going to throw you up out of the water. I'm going to just cast you out into the wilderness and the desert. And uh, I'm not. No one's going to gather you. You're just going to be a, a carcass. It's going to be like a wasted death. Basically, just grab it, throw it on the ground, and leave it. And it becomes carrion uh, for the beasts of the earth and for the birds of the heavens. That that it's basically a complete humiliation of their pride. That they're just going to be thrown out and exposed for what they are, and completely destroyed. And then he kind of clarifies what this looks like in verses. Uh, 9 through 12, um, that what's going to happen is that God's promising to make the land desolate. Uh, he's providing the same kind of indictment of Egypt that he has done for uh, Israel and Judah, for other places. No one's going to live there. Uh, it's going to be desolate among desolate places. And uh, the Egyptians are going to be scattered all around the world. Um when we explore uh, Ezekiel 29, 13 through 21, we're going to talk about how this doesn't literally happen. Egypt never goes through a point where they are completely um, evacuated and, and made desolate like Judah was during the um, time of the exile that would soon be beginning. Um, and so... We'll talk about that more later when we see how everything works together. Uh, but it's important for us to go back to kind of 6b through 9. What, another reason why we're going to have the sword brought upon them and man and beast cut off for Egypt, Egypt he made a desolation awaits is because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. 
this is a very interesting imagery. So Israel, Egypt is famous for papyrus, and papyrus are from papyri reeds. And the thing about papyrus reeds is that uh, if you try to grab hold of them, they're not very stable, and they're very liable to break. And when they break, uh, they become very sharp, and they can stab you through the hand. And so this becomes kind of a metaphor for what Egypt is as a source of strength or security for uh, Israel. What's fascinating about this imagery is its origin. The first place we see it being used is in Second Kings and in Isaiah, spoken by the Rab Shaka. The Rab Shaka, who is the deputy of the king of Assyria, who has come and is speaking to the Judeans in Jerusalem, telling them how hopeless it is, how they're going to be destroyed by the king of Assyria, saying, what, you're trusting in Egypt? Uh, it's a splintered reed staff. If you you know lean on it for support, it's just going to puncture you. You, know, you can't trust in Egypt. And um, for as much as the Rab Shaka was wrong about a lot of things, he wasn't wrong about Egypt. And so it's very important for us to understand what's going on here, uh, to understand kind of the relationship between Egypt and Israel um, from the, let's say, the end of the Bronze Age. Um, we, first of all, understand, need to make it clear that as, as Ezekiel has already done before, uh, God has judged and condemned Judah for putting their trust in foreign policy, putting their trust in Egypt. So uh, that has already been addressed, and that hasn't changed. But here we have a specific critique about Egypt. And normally when we think about Egypt, we think about pyramids and the exodus and and, and all that stuff before. And, and it's not that any of that stuff is being denied, but that's really not Ezekiel's concern here. Egypt is a historically old civilization. It's important for us to realize that uh, Egypt started having pharaohs 2,400 years before Ezekiel prophesied. That's almost as long as it's been since Ezekiel prophesied. I mean, it's been 2,600 years between him and us, uh, and 2,400 years between the first pharaohs and him. So it's an incredibly long period of time. Um, and throughout Israel, Egyptian history, they kind of waxed and waned in their uh, strength. For us to understand what Egypt is doing, we need to understand that soon after the time of Joseph, let's say, um, Egypt was invaded by Semitic-speaking Canaanites that they call the Hyksos, the Shepherd Kings. And they conquered what we call Lower Egypt, which is Northern Egypt, the Delta area, and ruled over it for uh, 150 or so years. Uh, which was a huge blow to the pride of Egypt. Egypt has always prided itself on being this stable, powerful civilization, and they were just better than everybody else. They were far better than the people to their south and to their west and to their northeast. And so to be, you know, these Hyksos came with their chariots that the Egyptians hadn't really mastered yet. And uh, so under that oppression, uh, those in, in Upper Egypt to the south learned about the chariots and started fighting against the Hyksos kings. And finally, uh, what we call the 18th dynasty of Egypt, uh, around 1500 or so, 1550, conquered and defeated the Hyksos. And very soon after that, uh, it became part of Egypt's foreign policy purpose to make sure something like that didn't happen again. 
And so they started working on building for themselves an empire to their northeast beyond the Sinai that they had been conquering for uh, the better part of 2,000 years, uh, all the way up into what we consider the land of Israel, uh, the land of the Canaanites, uh, talked about often as the southern Levant. Um, back to Moses III who is a pharaoh who is the pharaoh of the oppression if you are taking the early date of the 1480s to 1440s um, is the pharaoh who has this mighty victory at Megiddo and really solidifies Egyptian control of the Levant now what was Egypt looking for there were they looking for all kinds of material resources I'm the Canaanites and others probably sent in a good amount of tribute. Uh, they're on trading lines, uh, but that area wasn't providing Egypt with the lapis lazuli and other resources like in the Sinai or the gold of Nubia. And no, that land was conquered as a buffer zone. That land was conquered so that uh, Egypt wouldn't be invaded again. And and we have all kinds of correspondence in the days of Amenhotep IV Akhenaten, about a century or more later, uh, seeing all these Canaanite kings are constant requests. Uh, and you can you can understand that it was quite bothersome and quite annoyance and a lot of effort, a lot of soldiers, a lot of resources being expended to maintain that, that northeastern empire. Uh, it was very valuable to them. And so throughout what we call the New Kingdom period, but for the most part, you know, that land was fairly much understood to be subdued. And that lasts until around 1075. Around 1075, uh, central authority in Egypt breaks down. Um, there still will be pharaohs in the 21st, 22nd dynasties, especially up in lower Egypt. Uh, but down in upper Egypt, it's the priests of uh, Amun and Thebes who are running the show. And this is the first time of, of great weakness uh, that heralds what uh, historians will call the third intermediate period of Egypt. Now, uh, no one walked in and sold fair. All right, all right, it, it's, it's starting to fade. It's just going to fade and go away. So now you don't have this anymore. You are just this little land here um, from the Mediterranean down to uh, Aswan. Uh, no, Egypt always looked to the Levant as part of their empire, part of their kingdom. And so what we see is whenever there's kind of a resurgence of power in Egypt, uh, we see an attempt to reestablish that uh, land up there in, in the Levant as part of the Egyptian empire. And it's done in one of two ways. So in the Bible, in the days of Rehoboam, we find out that an Egyptian king named Shishak comes up and invades and conquers Jerusalem. And all the gold of the temple has to be given to him to keep him from destroying the city. Uh, Shishak sounds suspicious, like Shawshank. And Shawshank is a pharaoh who, uh, humiliatingly for the Egyptians, is from the 23rd Libyan dynasty, uh, where he, he is uh, of Libyan descent. And, and so we have uh, some Libyans now in charge, which uh, did not make anybody feel any better. Um, that dynasty would continue until you had invasion from the south. And this is extremely humiliating to the Egyptians that all of a sudden now there's a 24th Nubian dynasty ruling over them, uh, kings from Napata. Um, it's somewhat akin to if uh, Mexico invaded America and took it over right now, uh, in terms of at least how the people saw everything. And um, this is getting us much closer to the days of Assyrian strength 
And so um, a very prevalent uh, one of these pharaohs named is uh, Tarharka, which is akin to Tirhaka in, in the uh, king's narrative. And uh, Tirhaka does send an army to try to help Hezekiah against the king of Assyria. Uh, that army does seems to succeed somewhat uh, in some of the issues that Hezekiah is facing. Uh, but uh, Egypt is not able to fully support them. So, you know, these are the kings being talked about when the Rabshaka comes to town. Well, what's, why would he send his army? Well, what's happened is, is that uh, Tirhaka has helped to instigate Hezekiah to maintain his posture of rebellion against the king of Assyria, along with his associate in the king of Babylon. And this is the second way that the Egyptians uh, attempt to meddle in the affairs of, of Levant, where they aren't strong enough to demonstrate the show of force to keep uh, the kings of Judah in line, but they'll certainly agitate to try to get the kings of Judah to maintain a foreign policy that is contrary to the foes of Egypt to continue to be that buffer zone for Egypt. It's not based in any care or concern for uh, the Israelites themselves. It's really trying to protect Egypt. Um, and this is exactly what has just happened again that Ezekiel is very angry about because that Nubian dynasty was destroyed when uh, Ashurbanipal, the king of Assyria, uh, invaded and with a, a native pharaoh named Samtik uh, up in the north uh, purged the, the land of the Nubian dynasty. And uh, Samtik's descendants uh, include a guy named Samtik II and Wahibre, uh, otherwise known as a priest. And they are the pharaohs at this time uh, who um, have induced the uh, Judahites to rebel against the king of Babylon and to suffer the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the Samtic son, by the way, was the Nico who in Second Kings is trying to keep propping up the king of Assyria against the Babylonians, whom Josiah meets in battle. It's actually Nico who speaks the word of God to Josiah, telling him, get out of the way. You have nothing to do with this. I'm not here to hurt you. And so it's Nico who, when was, he was not able to help support uh, the Assyrian king, who came back, saw Jehoahaz on the throne, didn't like that, took him into exile, and put Jehoiakim on the throne. And successfully got Jehoiakim to turn his allegiance away from Babylon, which would be very bad for Egypt, since Egypt and Babylon were now fighting each other and kind of uh, attempted to keep the king of Judah more on the Egyptian side than on the Babylonian side. Then, of course, Nebuchadnezzar sent another army, and that's why uh, Ezekiel has been exiled. So now we can see why Ezekiel feels very badly about this. And Ezekiel has understandable anger uh, at this. And God's anger at Egypt for doing this, because Egypt has looked at Israel and Judah as their buffer zone, as uh, a way to protect their land, and has not really supported or preserved Israel and Judah, has not proven to be a great ally for Israel and Judah, has proven to be a very weak ally for Israel and Judah that has exposed Israel and Judah uh, to devastation and to destruction. And so this is why condemnation was going to come upon Egypt. And uh, we invite you to join us next time when we discuss exactly what God has in mind and how it would all go down and what that means about the way we look at prophecy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that you have a great day.